Welcome back to the Better Birth Podcast, where we talk about all things pregnancy, birth, and postpartum to help you feel empowered on your new parenting journey. Better Birth is presented by Anja Health, the first affordable stem cell safe for banking umbilical cord and placenta stem cells for future cell-based treatments. We're so happy you've joined us. Let's dive into today's episode. Um, so welcome to episode two of the Better Birth Podcast. We are chatting today about cord blood banking, um, and I'm so excited to have this chat with Catherine. She's the founder of Anja and just a fearless leader when it comes to talking about stem cells. <laughs> you can laugh, but you truly are. Um, I think just like the across the board, the way that you approach chatting with families about stem cells is very informative and intuitive and just really is making a big difference in the space. So I'm excited to have this chat with you. <laughs> yeah, you do. <laughs> um, and I'm Amelia. I'm the head of community at Anja. Um, so I'm on the Anja team. I'm also a certified doula. Um, so let's jump right in. Um, I want to start by asking Catherine about to share a little bit about her story and what brought her to founding a stem cell bank and yeah, we'll just start there and that'll launch us into the next piece. Yeah. So I started Anja House because of my younger brother, Andrew. So I named the company after him. So the company's name is Anja House. Um, so I wanted like a four letter word, but I still wanted it to be um, similar to his name. But basically when I was three and he was one, he was in a near drowning accident that gave him cerebral palsy. And from there, my mom was looking into treatments for cerebral palsy and really found that the most promising thing was cord blood stem cells. Um, so children were receiving their own cord blood stem cells back into them after being diagnosed with cerebral palsy and they were seeing motor and social skill improvements. And so I had always known about cord blood stem cells as a really promising space, but I also um, then all realized that the space was um, kind of predatory in a way. I found that a lot of companies um, were wanting parents to save their own cord blood stem cells, um, which was great, but they were continuing to hike up prices and they weren't really marketing it properly in a way that I felt like was comprehensive to most families and really inclusive. And so I wanted to create an option that um, would be that more affordable, inclusive um, space where parents could really turn to as a resource. Um, so I started talking about uh, just cord blood and the fact that you can do it on TikTok. And I founded Anja Health with it so that parents had a proper um, resource to go to that had that lower price tag. Um, and yeah, so now I spend a lot of time making TikToks, talking about it, talking to parents and um, just talking about my story and building the company. Yeah. Amazing. If you met a, a random parent on the street who is expecting, um, what would be something that you would want them to know about stem cell banking and why, you know, saving their baby's stem cells at birth is important? Yeah. I actually see pregnant parents on the street all the time. I saw one last night, but I always feel guilty going up to them because I feel like pregnant parents always tell me that they feel like they get targeted by ads all the time. And it's so annoying and I don't want to approach them in person, but if they asked, um, I would say at least consider looking into cord blood banking and the research behind it. Um, just because I think, a lot of parents hear about it roughly, but then um, they think that like, 
oh, eventually I'll put some time aside and research it. Um, and then they never do. And then the birth happens and then they're kind of like, oh, well, that's unfortunate that never happened. Um, so yeah, I would just recommend setting aside even like 15 minutes or something like that. I feel like parents usually just want to feel comfortable researching it and doing a little bit of Googling and you can Google on the angelhealth.com slash blog, um, in order to find proper information. But, um, yeah, I would just consider it as an option and not push it aside so that you have a, a truly informed decision. Brief interruption for our podcast listeners, and then we'll get right back to it. If you're currently pregnant, then this is important for you to know. So when I was three and my brother was one, he was in a near drowning accident that gave him cerebral palsy. One treatment for cerebral palsy is giving children stem cells from their own umbilical cord. The umbilical cord and placenta are both super rich with stem cells that can be used to replace and repair damaged cells. And when they come from the baby, they're a perfect match for that baby. However, my family didn't save stem cells for my brother and we couldn't find a match when the time came. It's pretty difficult to find a cord blood stem cell match if you're a person of color or mixed race. So the best solution to this problem is to save stem cells right at birth. You can do this with AngiHealth. We have a kit that you can bring with you to birth and it contains all of the tools that your provider needs to collect your umbilical cord and placenta. After birth, you can place a pickup in our parent portal and we'll come and pick it up from anywhere in the United States and bring it to our lab in New Jersey where it will be frozen in the same way that you can freeze eggs or sperm. Then your family will always have access to stem cells for future disease treatment. Stem cells have been used to treat type 1 diabetes, different types of cancers, heart disease, liver disease, multiple sclerosis, and more. Get your kit today with Anja Health by going to AnjaHealth.com. That's A-N-J-A-H-E-A-L-T-H.com. You can always text or call us with questions as well at 310-620-1663. And yes, it is always a real person. And now back to the episode. Yeah, definitely. Well, let's chat a little bit about the types of stem cells that exist within the placenta and the umbilical cord and the umbilical cord blood. Um, let's talk a little bit about that and dive into the science of stem cells a bit. Like yeah. what are stem cells? I guess it would be a good question. Like what, do, what are stem cells and what do they do in the body? Yeah. So, um, stem cells are essentially like blank cells and they can be used to replace and repair damaged cells in a way. Um, so that's sort of a high level explanation, but essentially, um, they are a more mature type of stem cell than embryonic stem cells, which is the more controversial form of stem cells that comes from, um, abortions essentially, um, or it can, um, and so these are a little bit more mature in the sense that they've come from a baby that's a bit farther along and more developed. And so because of that, the blood and tissue stem cells have already become specialized into either blood or either tissue stem cells, whereas embryonic stem cells, um, they aren't specialized at all and they can kind of become anything, even cancer cells. So people have found that embryonic stem cells can actually even be carcinogenic, whereas the cord blood stem cells and cord tissue stem cells are a really great resource because they've already been specialized into either blood or tissue. So they will never become unstable and carcinogenic. They will remain either blood or tissue stem cells. And because of that, you can use them for blood and tissue ailments. Um, so people have used the cord blood stem cells for um, anything that requires blood regeneration. So even things like cerebral palsy and HIV, type one diabetes, different types of um, 
cancers like leukemia um, and also uh, blood cell abnormalities, sickle cell anemia, things like that. Whereas the tissue stem cells that are found in the cord tissue and also the placenta have been used for things that are more tissue related. So like organ repairs or even um, treating acne scars and skin repairs. Um, I got a TikTok comment once that someone literally placed a placenta like on her eye and um, or like got a placenta stem cell treatment on her eye. It wasn't like the placenta itself. Um, but, uh, yeah, like she had like a lot of swelling in that area and there was a lot of dry skin and it like helped repair it. So, um, yeah, things like that. So you can think of the, the blood as for blood related things, the tissue stem cells as for tissue related things. And they come from, uh, similarly the cord blood and the cord tissue and or placenta. Yeah. I think that's always an interesting conversation to jump into when it comes to talking about stem cells. It's like, typically when you're thinking of stem cell treatments, you're thinking about the worst case scenarios like childhood cancer or a metabolic disorder or something that's life-threatening, but there's so many things that are being studied that are more of quality of life, whether it's sports injuries or, you know, eye, eye damage or organ damage, and just kind of like rejuvenating the body. Um, One of my favorite ways to talk about it is like, it's like a time machine backup on your iPhone, but for your body. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So when it comes to saving stem cells, what should parents know about coming into birth with a stem cell kit? How do they have that conversation with their provider? How do they advocate for, Hey, I'm planning on baking my stem cells. Um, How do they, you know, how do they jump into that? Yeah, for sure. I actually have one of our kits here, so I can show you, but basically they can bring this kit with them to birth and um, it is pretty large, but also for good reason. So that visually physicians know that you have the kit. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, that's not the only reason that it's large, but um, yeah, you can just bring this with you in your birth bag. And so um, the way that it would work is you just set it aside and just let the nurse know that you have it and the nurse can, um, utilize all the materials inside. So inside there, um, they will set it aside for just right after birth. So right after the baby comes out with the umbilical cord and placenta attached. Um, and then you can use this blood bag to insert into the cord blood vein. Um, and that way the cord blood can be collected in here, and then you can place it back inside of the kit. Um, then the nurse or physician will typically cut off six to eight inches of the umbilical cord and place it in this jar and then put it back. And then they can also put the placenta in a biohazard bag and then put that in this jar um, and then put that all back. And then we also have smaller tubes to collect samples of the mother's blood um, or the whoever is giving birth. Um, And so, yeah, we have four of these typically um, and parents can use it to collect samples so that we screen it for disease. And then you can place it all back within the kit and then um, call our pickup line and we will come and pick it up from wherever in the US and bring it to our lab. Um, So yeah, I think some patients um, assume that they have to take on all this responsibility, but really it's just a matter of bringing the kit Um, And then you just have to look your physician and or nurses in the eye and tell them that you have the kit and that you wish to bank cord blood, cord tissue and or the placenta so that they know. Um, And then it's pretty much their duty to take care of the rest. And then afterwards, you would just call our pickup line or you can even ask um, your nurse to do it or a partner, typically your family member. Um, So, yeah, the main three steps are just getting the kit, bringing it to birth and then calling for pickup. Easy peasy. 
Yeah. <laughs> I think one of the things that it, it can feel artificially hard because it's another thing to think about. And so I always like advocate for parents um, when, when there's a parent who is um, the parent that's not giving birth, the supporting partner to take on the role of owning a piece. Um, how can, how can they like take on that role as a partner to like make this process seamless and just really intuitive? Um, I think in general, just seeing the kit, seeing the pieces that go into it and kind of like reading the collection pieces um, of like how the collection is done and understanding that so that you can talk to the provider, but how can a, how can a dad or a partner own that piece of the birth story? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I would honestly recommend that they try to just own this entire piece. Um, and I think a lot of dads especially like to, since they feel so like uninvolved in some capacities. Um, and so like, I, I remember this one dad ordered a kit. He sent me a selfie when he got it. And he was like, I'm so excited. Cause this is our fourth kid. Like my wife has done so much and I just really want to own this piece because otherwise like I don't do anything. <laughs> um, and so he was really excited. So he made sure it was like his duty to bring the kit. Um, it was his duty to remind the nurse and the physician. And then he made sure that it was all collected. And then it was his duty to call for pickup at the end. Um, so yeah, I would definitely just like make this a part of something that, that you can own and be proud of owning and you can sort of gamify it for yourself even. Um, so yeah, like the dad tried to call the pickup line, like immediately after birth. And he was like, I'm going to bring a GoPro and I'll be there like filming the whole thing. He was so excited. Um, so yeah, I would encourage other parents to take on this as a responsibility. Um, since yeah, the birth parent is doing so much. Yeah, definitely. It's nice to know that there's like, you know, I think as a parent who's given birth before thinking back on that and kind of the golden hour moments of birth, which the golden hour is like the first hour after the baby is born, um, where you're just kind of snuggling and soaking everything up and there's not really anything that needs to be done in that moment. I think the wonderful thing about Anja is like, you can soak up that golden hour as the partner you know, making sure that like, Hey, the kit's been collected, you know, you're the, the nurse practitioner or the L and D nurse or the midwife or OB is doing the collection. They can answer questions, but it's not something where like, you need to call the courier, like immediately after, like you can enjoy your golden hour and get some snuggles and then call the, and then call <laughs> the pickup line. Um, because you know, it's like within six hours of birth. Right. So yeah, there's a little bit of flexibility, um, and the kit gets to be kept at room temperature in your room and just basically carried over to the postpartum wing. And then our courier will come and seamlessly pick it up for you. It makes it much <laughs> easier. Um, as far as like going back to, you know, stem cells, uh, one of the, one of the things I would love to know more about is where do you see stem cells going in the future? Like, what is the trajectory that makes you look at stem cells and say, everybody should have access to this. Everyone should have their own stem cells versus donating to a private, to a public bank. Like why should folks consider privately banking? And um, are there any like recommendations that you would have in that kind of vein? Yeah, for sure. Well, um, I've spoken with experts in the space. And for the most part, it seems like a lot of people are looking forward to stem cell expansion being a real area where they can delve deeper into. So really being able to extract 
um, greater value from the same amount of volume than we have historically. So if you really want to get in the weeds, and I think that's something to, to look forward to, but I think for the most part for me, like even this past year, it was so promising when um, like the New York Times and like all these different publications pushed that the third person ever had used, um, had used cord blood stem cells to treat HIV. And so like seeing that kind of like really bold press coverage about umbilical cord blood um, was really promising for me and just like proved further that I think there's constantly scientific advances um, and a lot of people are super bullish on cord blood stem cells and especially the placenta because the placenta is so physically large, there's so much to be extracted from it. And so um, even as I've spoken with our OBGYN advisors about what they think the future is, um, it's mostly like placenta leaning too, because um, I think like a lot of people underestimate what the placenta can do since there is more research on the umbilical cord blood stem cells. Um, I think largely because umbilical cord blood was the first source of stem cells that people were conducting transplants on in the 80s. Um, but a lot of people that I've spoken with are really um, looking forward to advancements on the placenta stem cells because, um, yeah, because it is so large and like it's so unstudied and also um, it has been used relatively successfully for so many different things. Um, so yeah, I think for me, mostly it's just looking forward to like continual advancements that seem to be happening faster and faster every year. Yeah. Banking the placenta is something that's often overlooked. Like a lot of cord blood companies tend to focus on the actual cord blood because there's so much research behind it and the tissue. So mm -hmm. it's exciting to like have that as an option for personalizing. I think jump, let's dive a little bit deeper into the placenta. Um, as far as, you know, there's other options, uh, when it comes to your placenta that a lot a lot of folks probably hear about um, celebrities <laughs> do it. They like um, encapsulate their placenta and then yeah. consume it. Um, and the benefits of that, that they, you know, the, there's no research or studies really being done on placenta medicine mm. um, and placenta medicine in the form of consuming it. Um, so a lot of times these are just, you know, folks who have maybe a bloodborne pathogen certificate, they take them home, put them on a dehydrator, cook it, and then dehydrate it and then, um, kind of like grind it up and they put it into pills and people, yeah. um, self-report pretty much. There's not any, um, clinical studies on this. Um, they self-report like, Hey, it increases my breast milk volume or it lowered my, you know, postpartum depression, which is all, you know, of course, anecdotal evidence because there, this isn't being clinically studied. It's just mm -hmm. self-reported. Um, but what is your kind of, of course you are an advocate for banking the placenta, um, kind of jump into that a little bit more. Like why should folks consider foregoing placenta encapsulation and saving their placenta in cry in a cryo bank instead? Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's not necessarily like one or the other to me, I feel like you should make a decision on placenta encapsulation and then make a decision on placenta banking. But of course I would, I would definitely recommend placenta banking, but, um, and we, we have had folks do placenta encapsulation and then continue to bank their cord blood and cord tissue. So it's not like you won't get any stem cells if you choose to do that. But, um, yeah, in the words of our OBGYN advisor, um, I, I wouldn't put, or I wouldn't eat anything that comes out of my vagina. 
Um, so that's what our OB advisor, Dr. Rogers said when I asked her about placenta encapsulation and she was kind of like, um, yeah, everything, every piece of research surrounding it is like really anecdotal. Like most people have attributed it to, um, a placebo effect. I believe in Europe, it's banned to do placenta encapsulation because, um, it is so dangerous. And in the United States, it's a completely unregulated industry. Um, and I think a lot of folks like encapsulate with the hopes that um, it'll help reduce postpartum depression. But um, as our OB advisor mentioned to me when I chatted with her about it, there are so many other ways to potentially reduce um, postpartum depression and treat it. And there have been, um, there just is such a downside, like potential downside to eating your own placenta. Um, and there have been case studies of like both the mom and baby having like very severe health defects after consuming a placenta. Um, so yeah, I definitely like personally wouldn't do it and would recommend anyone else to delve deeper into the research behind it. And then separately, you can delve deeper into the research behind placenta banking. Um, but I definitely think that's a great alternative because otherwise placentas are really just thrown away. Um, and so, yeah, I would, I would not encapsulate a placenta. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, I think one of the wonderful things about um, data and one of the things that I guess is very intriguing to me about data just in general is when there's the, the placenta itself is just very, there's not much research been done on the placenta mm -hmm. in general, just because of the ethics of studying something that is so vital to pregnancy could put the pregnancy at risk. Um, but just recently, you know, there was a study that kind of showed like, oh wait, there's microplastics in the placenta that was yeah. studied afterwards. So there's a lot we don't know. Um, and some things like we, I would love to dive into this more in the future. Um, but I think that it's really cool where to look at where the research is when you're mm -hmm. making decisions about these things um, and look at where the research is focused and definitely like don't overlook the cons of things just because there's a lot of noise or a lot of celebrity bias towards something. Definitely. I, I always recommend paying attention to like your sources. So where can people go for sources about banking versus encapsulating that are something that's not going to be biased towards something that would be perhaps like anti-scientific uh, or anti-evidence rhetoric. Yeah. Yeah. I would say evidence-based birth is a great resource. Um, the Angel Health blog, we try to um, really ensure that that's all accredited resource resources and that um, it's really evidence-based as well. Um, so that could be another resource. Um, I typically also look at um, a lot of like really amazing accredited institutions like Cleveland Clinic um, or like the University of Michigan Children's Hospital. They have a lot of blog content up. Um, Cleveland Clinic has a ton. I feel like I'm like really well versed on like SEO in the pregnancy space because Cleveland Clinic is like the top result from so many pregnancy questions. Um, and Cleveland Clinic is like an amazing institution. Like people always want to study there when they're trying to be a physician. Um, so yeah, I usually trust them and then evidence-based birth too, because they, they really try to be that evidence-based, um, resource. So yeah, I would say any of those, um, but yeah, something else I forgot to mention is that the, I feel like most people attribute, um, celebrities eating their placenta to the Kardashians, but if you actually watch the full episode where they talk about placenta encapsulation, they don't even eat it because they think it's gross as they should. Um, and they, and they are like scared of like getting an infection and they just do it for like the bit of an episode and to like gross Kris Jenner out and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, they, they throw it away. 
So it's not like even the Kardashians did it, even though they're like famous for it. Um, so you shouldn't either. <laughs> <laughs> I love how that happens with like media. Like people just like pick a small piece and they stick, you know, it goes viral. And then of course, yeah. everyone just kind of falls in line. I think um, in general, there's kind of people are also looking at, you know, nature. Like for example, if a cow has the calf or a deer or an elk in the woods has a calf and they birth their placenta, they consume the placenta on site. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a good conversation um, around, I've listened to a really interesting talk by a biologist about it at one point. I'll have to go back and see if I can figure it out because I don't have no idea who the biologist was, but they were talking about, you know, the predator the predator piece of that, where if there was a placenta lying on the ground and the afterbirth was sitting there, you know, the, like the smells would attract predators to come oh. eat the calf. And so where we can look in nature and say, oh, this is what is like the intuitive thing to do, or this is what you should do based on like, oh, an animal in nature does this when we're considering like the predator factor, um, it makes sense. And so I think it's important to kind of like understand those nuances when you're having those conversations about placenta encapsulation and things like that as well. Um, that folks, you know, that could be something that you read in a blog of like, oh, well, it's perfect. It's in nature. Um, I think it's always important to consider that nature, there's botulism in nature, there's germs and bacteria that would gladly kill you. Um, and they don't, you know, there's no, they, they, those bacteria and, um, things have no bias. And so it's really important to kind of consider all of those, all of those factors. And also like, if you are going to, if you do move forward with placenta encapsulation, you look at it and you're like, yes, it could be placebo, but I want to try it. Mm -hmm. Make sure that you're going to someone who has the credentials to make sure that those there's no bloodborne pathogens that could be harmful to you or your baby. So, um, always make sure that it's processed properly. Um, heated to the crop proper temperatures, those sorts of things so that you're not dealing with those like bloodboard pathogens. It's similar to eating, you know, raw meat or something. Um, you're taking on similar risks, sometimes even worse though, because it is a human material. So right. Yeah, something to consider. Yeah. <laughs> I know it's a total deviation of the like, no, <laughs> we can I think cut, we can kind of do that out, but yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I didn't know that. <laughs> That's another a fun conversation we can add into the blog, Katie. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, yeah, I'm thinking I, I want to make sure I'm not like missing anything so we can bring I think, space I think for like- I want to mention is the, um, I, I think maybe delayed cord clamping and then also yeah. um, the like 20 states that it's required in. Oh yeah, 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 totally. <laughs> okay, we'll start with the delayed cord clamping, so- I think a big conversation that I think about a lot when it comes to cord blood banking that a lot of folks have, and especially like as a doula and looking at evidence and being like someone who's very interested in the evidence behind what we're doing. Let's talk a little bit about cord blood banking and delayed cord clamping and how those things are correlated. And, you know, can you do both or do you have to pick one or the other? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's kind of interesting because sometimes I've spoken about it and then people assume that it's required to do both. <laughs> um, and like, it's required to move forward with, uh, or it's required to delay cord clamping to move forward with Angel House, but it's not, I mean, they're, they're totally separate. You can do both. Um, but you can also choose one. Um, yeah. So basically delayed cord clamping is where folks wait to cut the cord, um, in order for the baby to receive, um, 
extra like nutrients in a sense. Um, but it's mostly iron. So in the first like six months of life, the baby has demonstrated boosted iron levels. Um, however, according to various studies, um, the benefits of delayed cord clamping are the same when you delay for just around 30 to 60 seconds versus if you delayed for like seven minutes, then there's still that there's still that same amount of iron boosting roughly. Um, so some folks think like you can delay forever and ever and you get more benefits. Sometimes I get comments on TikTok that are like, if you just had every baby delay and like wait to cut the cord forever, then they wouldn't have any health problems, but obviously that's not true. Um, and so, um, yeah, so I think it's, yeah, just important to be wary of that. Um, and then with cord blood banking separately, um, then you can do delayed cord clamping for max two minutes. So you could actually go beyond that necessary threshold. Um, and then from there you can bank the rest. Um, and so we generally tried to get about 60 milliliters of cord blood, um, which you can still get with two minutes of delayed cord clamping. So you can do both. Um, if it were me, I would probably choose to do about like 30 to 45 seconds, um, of delayed cord clamping and then bank the rest of, um, my baby's cord blood. So, um, that's what I would personally do. Um, I'd be curious, actually, I've never asked you, what did you do during your birth? Yeah. So we delayed for 60 seconds. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And it was just um, yeah. So I I'm a I am a big fan of delayed cord clamping. Um, when I looked at the evidence and kind of compared all of the different things, there's significant benefits to delaying cord clamping. Many many healthcare organizations around the globe are recommending it. Mm-hmm. It's especially important for premature infants that they get that extra boost. Um, those babies, all babies need, you know, the anemia protection, and I think that it's a wonderful gift that as a parent we can give them. Um, in the hospitals that I worked in, um, in the San Francisco Bay area, it's becoming common practice. Like every practitioner practices delayed cord clamping, even from cesareans and things like that. The only time they wouldn't is if there was something significantly wrong with the baby where they needed to move quickly. Um, Mm -hmm. if there was a health condition that they were working with. So that that's, that's something to consider. Mm -hmm. Um, it depends on the practitioner and what's, what's going on. Um, but giving that baby the extra chance to get a little bit more blood volume, get some blood to their brain for that that first little bit of life. And also just like pushing them, giving them a good boost. Um, when I looked at it though, I couldn't find any evidence that delaying cord clamping for an extended period of time was of any significant benefit. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think we actually like timed it, but I just said, Hey, let's make sure it's at least 60 seconds. And I think they cut it around that time. Um, there was still obviously blood flow in the, it wasn't completely white. Um, so there was still like, you know, like blood that would have been able to be, you know, collected and all those things. And of course, like a midwife or an OB could milk the, milk the cord a little bit to get more blood volume out of it and things like that. Um, but yeah, when the evidence, when you're looking at evidence, I think it's important to kind of look at all of the different pieces and kind of look at it from an overarching view. And I think there's a lot of really good sources that show the, show the benefits of delayed cord clamping. So I'm really happy that it's possible to do both. Um, I think it's kind of sad and a little, a little bit of alarming that the common, you know, pervasive um, rhetoric is that if you do, if you do cord blood banking, you can't delay cord clamping. So I think it's mm-hmm. good to have like the conversations of like, actually, yes, right. you can. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 I think we did a poll once on our Instagram. Um, how long did you delay cord clamping? If you banked with Anja and um, 
like most people said, like I saw like 30 seconds, 90 seconds, seconds, 60 seconds. So yeah, I feel like a lot of our current customer base, they, they do do like cord clamping as well. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think that it's pretty interesting, like having been to so many births and like seen many different umbilical cords. Um, there's some folks whose cords, there's a, a complication, which can mm-hmm. be concerning. It's not always concerning where there's actually only three veins in the cord instead of, mm-hmm. or two veins in the cord instead of three. Um, and so I think it's something that you can also look at. It's like some cords are just like really thick and veiny and like very juicy cords. And then some are shorter and have less blood volume. So I think like folks can also use like good judgment. I think midwives and doulas yeah. are good ones to like, look at that um, and make a judgment about, you know, when is the best time to clamp the cord? Um, but yeah, I mean, there's no benefits that's been able to be shown by data for delaying cord clamping for an hour. Some folks like to do that. If you like to do that, go for it. But um, <laughs> the evidence doesn't show any, like any real benefit to doing that. So yeah. 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 And one of our OB advisors, Dr. Rogers mentioned to me that um, if you, some, sometimes there are complications if it's too long, um, like the baby can jaundice, which of course can still be like treated pretty easily, I think. Um but yeah, she was kind of saying like, it's almost better to not like keep it on forever and do like a Lotus birth type of vibe because then, um, yeah, there could be like complications on like both ends of the extreme. Um, so yeah, she was saying like, typically like the 30, 60 seconds is in the safer range and that's, um, ACOG, ACOG's official recommendation. Yeah, definitely. I think Lotus births have, um, some like cultural significance to some people groups. And so I think it's always important to kind of acknowledge that, that mm-hmm. for some people groups, it's almost like um, a religious um, or cultural significance. And so I think it's extremely valid to consider that when you're looking at, you know, doing, when you're looking at something like a lotus birth, I think it's important to consider that once the placenta is detached from the uterus, there is a you know, there's no longer blood flow to that placenta. The placenta is detached and it then starts decaying. And so it's very important. So um, if somebody were to do a lotus birth, you should definitely research on how to prevent or slow the decaying process and also to look at the risks of, you know, that being attached to your baby for a long period of time. Um, I always recommend, you know, just like look at the pros and cons of anything that you're doing. Um, and know, you know, know what you're walking into so that you're fully informed on what's going on and you know what to watch for and things like that, or if something, if something changed for the negative. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. I see like a lot of comments on TikTok, especially about Lotus births. Um, yeah, I feel like it's sort of been glamorized. I don't know by what, but (laughs) well, it's just kind of this like holistic birth world, which I think is beautiful in its own way. There's, there's a lot to be said for the over-medicalization of birth. Birth is not an emergency and it should not be treated as an emergency Mm. unless it proves to be emergent. So when someone's having a baby, yes, it's a very natural process. It should be not disturbed unless there's, it basically is proven that it needs to be disturbed. Mm. Um, So I think there's, there's, a lot to be said for that conversation for, you know, how can we in general, like change kind of the dialogue around birth? Because when we, when we treat birth as an emergency, you know, you see it in media, you see it um, in movies and TV and culture, these like, you know, someone's having a baby and there's just this big emergent moment of, 
boom, their water breaks and everyone's screaming and running around frantically and pushing the moms running and screaming through the halls in a wheelchair and then puff, 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 hush, you know, like lots and lots of screaming and then a baby is born and it's like that fast. And in reality, birth is like a slow dance. It starts with excitement in the early stages of labor. There's just like, oh, we're going to have our baby today. And just like, you know, all of the joy and emotions and adrenaline with that. And then as birth progresses over hours, not minutes over hours, there are precipitous births that happen really, really quickly that are hard to predict for the, but the far majority of births are a very slow, multi-hour, sometimes multi-day process um, because there's a lot of changes happening in the body. And so kind of depending, especially for first-time parents with second-time babies, they can come faster because the body's already done it before. It already understands the dilation process, but for first-time parents, um, going into birth, you know, as things progress, things get more serious. And this is kind of like as a doula, when I could tell like, okay, like this mom's really in labor, this birthing parent's really in labor, um, is like when things get really serious, the tone of everything changes. They want, they seek kind of like the quiet nesting pieces. And then, you know, and so that's about the time that you start thinking about going to the, going to the hospital, like things are picking up, things are getting more intense. They're no longer smiling and laughing and talking through contractions. They need everyone to be quiet so they can focus. Mm. And once that's happened for about an hour, that's a great time to head to the hospital. Cause then you're like, all right, this is active labor. It's not likely to stall by the transition of moving. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think just in our culture, we've been so programmed that birth has to be this like big hoopla when in reality, it's just a slow kind of slow fade um, throughout the, throughout time. And then it gains intensity and traction until you're going through transition. And then you start to feel the urge to push. And then the pushing stage can take time too. Like it's, it can be anywhere from, you know, 10 minutes to a couple hours, depending on the person and their body and kind of how the baby's sitting in the pelvis and all of these things. But when we treat birth out of the gate as an emergency and something that needs to be messed with, we're really doing a disservice to birthing parents and their families because we're not kind of like honoring and respecting the space and giving them a chance for their body, you know, to do the work. Um, I'm all for tools as well. Like, I think that there's really great tools. I don't believe in people suffering just for the sake of suffering. And so if it makes, you know, somebody more comfortable or less anxious to choose an epidural or choose an alternative pain medication, like I'm all for that. I'm all about bodily autonomy and making choices. Um, but I think that as, you know, as providers and people who are like supporting and honoring birth in the space, like if we can take that kind of like emergent feel out of it and just kind of give it time and space, it's amazing how many interventions can be avoided. Um, and I mean, we're, we've come a long way and I think we still have a long way to go. But um, I remember when I was talking to my grandmother about her birth, she was under general anesthesia and they used forceps and she doesn't remember any of it. And it was mm -hmm. extremely traumatic to the point where she had a hard time even talking about it. And that was just over 50 years ago. It's not crazy long that crazy long ago my parent my mom had kids really young and that definitely influenced like her decisions about the way that she birthed was her mom's birth stories being very like scary and um so I think that's an important thing to acknowledge too is like that you know birth trauma from like generations past and things that our parents and grandparents experienced um in birth and how you know we're making big strides in like how birth is honored and how the transition to parenthood is 
respected and like the, the evidence has changed, which I think is a wonderful thing. Uh, we're really starting to pay attention to the evidence and like use that to like direct our choices. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's the exciting thing of like working for me and like working in a data focused space where there's like kind of the future of healthcare is like, where can we go? with birth where we kind of, you know, slow things down a little bit. We like meet this like holistic intersection of this hum very human experience of a baby being born. And we meet that with science. I think it's like, it just bodes very well for the future, <laughs> for the future of birth. Yeah. 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 On the point of like birth not being emergent, I remember, um, in the episode of Keeping Up with the Kardashians, where Courtney is about to give birth to her first son, uh, Scott, her like um, boyfriend at the time, was like freaking out, and he was like, "We have to go to the hospital now." And she was like, "No, I need to do my glam <laughs> and <laughs> doing her makeup for like an hour." And even her little sisters, like Kylie and Kendall, they were like, I think they were like ten at the time, and they were like, "We have to go." Um, and like Courtney was like, "No, like not without my glam." <laughs> whatever makes you feel beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> I have definitely sat at home with moms while they curled their hair before going <laughs> to the hospital. And I'm always like, if you can curl your hair, it might not be time to go to the hospital. Yet. <laughs> yeah. oh <my> God. <laughs> I think when we're talking uh, to parents about cord blood banking and stem cells, um, many of them have never heard much, or they don't feel like they have much direction from their providers about court blood banking, or they're just throwing a handful of pamphlets and mm. just kind of like, good luck. Like you should know about this, but there's not much direction. Um, what are the kind of like laws in the U S like, what is the regulations around, you know, where, you know, what conversations need to be had about court blood banking and stem cells, um, for families who are expecting. Yeah. So in 31 states in the United States, there's a law or piece of pending legislation requiring OBs to inform expecting parents about their options related to cord blood stem cells. Um, and actually the National Academy of Medicine also gave Congress a report on the benefits of stem cells found in the umbilical cord. Um, and they called for a national stem cell banking program. Um, so although that was never like set into place, it just goes to show that there are like real institutions urging folks to take this more seriously and really ensure that they're um, putting information forward. And I always talk about on TikTok the fact that it is a legal mandate in these 31 states in the U.S. that your OBGYN informs you of your options related to your umbilical cord. Um, but I get so many comments that are like, oh, I'm due next week and I haven't been told about this. Um, or like, um, like, what if they haven't informed me yet and stuff like that. So um, yeah, I think in those cases, like the, because the research is advancing so quickly, some even OBs may have not heard about it. Um, and I think in the, if you don't live in one of these 31 states and they definitely probably haven't been like too terribly informed on it. So, um, yeah, in those cases, I would definitely recommend, um, looking into Anja health and just generally informing yourself of your options related to your umbilical cord and placenta and what you can do with them. Um, and the fact that they are so rich with stem cells that you can potentially save to use in the future for your family. Um, so if you live in Arizona, Arkansas, California, Colorado, Connecticut, Florida, Georgia, Hawaii, Illinois, Indiana, Kansas, Louisiana, Maryland, Massachusetts, Michigan, Mississippi, Missouri, 
that's a surprise. (laughs) (laughs) New Jersey, New Mexico, New York, North Carolina, North Dakota, Ohio, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, Tennessee, Texas, Virginia, Washington, or Wisconsin, then there is either um, some sort of initial law or a pending piece of legislation um, demonstrating that your position should at least inform you about this. Um, And so, yeah, because of that, I definitely think it's worth taking a look into. Yeah, that's always really interesting to me to see which states, because some of those states are known for their quite poor maternal health care. Um, <laughs> Missouri, Arkansas, you know, some of those states, like they have really poor outcomes. I'm my husband's from the Midwest. So like we I'm always like kind of keeping a pulse on like what's happening in these states, because there's a lot of there's they're very rural. And so there's a big lack of like maternal health care. I don't remember anyone talking to me about cord blood banking when I was pregnant and I was in multiple. I had pregnancy care in both California and Missouri. Um, and I don't remember ever being, ever being informed or given information about it. So this is a campaign for us for sure to like <laughs> help families come to the place where they're like better informed about their options. Yes. I think, especially if your family, you know, has a history of disease or if your family is mixed race or black or indigenous, or, you know, any of these like ethnicities who, where it's harder to find a match, it's important for you to be aware of your options. Um, and to know that, you know, hey, there's an affordable option on the in the marketplace, I guess you could say, um, for cord blood banking, if it's something that you feel would be beneficial to your family. Maybe like Catherine, you could dive into just a little bit of, you know, what are the next steps? How can people find out more? Um, of course, they can go to Anja Health and look at our science page. But um, what are the what are the next steps that you would recommend to somebody who is considering it? Um, maybe they're like, this seems interesting. I want to know more about Anja and what they offer. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I would definitely recommend taking a look at our site, AnjaHealth.com. Um, if you're ready to get a kit, then you can just get a kit right away there. Um, you can also take a look at any social media platform. We are active there. So you can also search on whatever platform you feel most comfortable with, um, even like Twitter and LinkedIn and um, Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, um, anything like that. We have content on all of those channels. Um, and I think especially our Instagram, Anja.health and, um, TikTok, Anja health. And then, um, my TikTok, Catherine Anja. So K-A-T-H-R-Y-N-A-N-J-A, um, has some really good, uh, information. I have a lot of playlists on my personal TikTok that compile a lot of information related to, um, just pregnancy in general. But then I also have a playlist for, um, like Angel health in general. And then I have like a review section because I get a lot of comments that are basically reviews. Um, and so I'll make videos about those, um, and then answering like stem cell FAQs as well. So, um, yeah, I think a lot of folks, uh, I've seen some parents that tell me that they like spend like an hour or two just scrolling through all the videos on my TikTok, and then it makes them like finally feel confident. So that's an option. Um, whatever way you best consume information, you can pretty much find it in that form on one of our channels or our website. Yeah, definitely. And I think like, if you have just general questions about pregnancy, parenting, preconception all the way, you know, cord blood banking and all of those pieces, you can always join our community and ask oh, those yes. questions directly within the community as well. Yes. yes. We <laughs> Plug for community. Better... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We have our better birth community. Um, so we have a parent section and then we also have a doula section, but we have a couple of 
like non doulas that are just in the general birth space, like childbirth educators and RNs. Um, and we hope to bring on like midwives and OBGYNs as well. So if you're just tangentially related to birth or a parent yourself or anything like that, or just looking for more resources, then I would definitely highly recommend looking into our betterbirth.community, or you can go to community.angelhealth.com to join. Yeah. Yeah. Exciting. <laughs> Perfect. Well, I think, um, we can wrap up. Do we want to wrap up the episode? Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was absolutely wonderful to sit down and chat through stem cells today. It's always a, a fun topic, a favorite topic of ours over here at Anja. Yes. Um, so thanks so much for hanging out with me, Catherine, and answering some of these questions. And yeah, and if you have any, any further questions, feel free to reach out via our email at hello at angiahealth.com or via our website, angiahealth.com uh, or any of our social channels. We're happy and thrilled to help you get evidence-based information that will actually answer your questions. Yes, definitely. Um, okay. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Bye guys. Bye. That's it from this episode of the better birth podcast presented by Anja health. See you next time.